Purposely Podcasts. We deliberately speak to social entrepreneurs, charity founders, and all-round awesome people to hear their founder story. Welcome to Purposely Podcast to Mary Story, who's joined me to talk about Rosie May Foundation. And welcome, Mary. Hi, Mark. Thank you You're- very much for inviting me. We we aim to keep families together. It's quite simple, really. Um, and what does that involve? That involves ensuring that um, we are able to get to the grassroots of the problem of child separation and to be able to develop uh, incentives and um, models that um, keep families together so that um, parents don't have to make that heartbreaking decision of having to put their child into um, an orphanage or a children's home. Because we know from research and from evidence that a child's best place is to be with their family in most cases. And that's it, really. Um, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's really quite simple. And I really want to um, talk to you about, you know, the motivation behind the charity. But in terms of international development and yeah. um, what you've personally learned, so you're a co-founder, um, what you've personally learned, what the charity's learned in their 17 years that it's been in existence. How, mm-hmm. how different are you in terms of your operations now from when you first started? hugely different hugely different and I think actually you know if you talk to anybody in um you know who who's particularly founders who set up you know a charity whenever it was um you know I think um most founders will you know would would hopefully tell you the same thing that actually um you know your charity changes evolves over time and you know, I think that's because when you first go into this, obviously there's a, a level of naivety. Um, you know, on um, you know, on and I certainly felt that myself, which is why I actually decided to go back to university and do a um, I did a BA in global studies, and then I went on to do an MA in um, global citizenship, identity, and human rights. Um, basically because I felt that, you know, I needed to um, <clears throat> have um, that it underpinning knowledge to be able to um, really um, professionalise the charity. It's this part of the conversation that Mary really gets into the motivation behind starting the charity. The Asian 2004 tsunami. So, um, and we started off, you know, with a children's home that was for um, orphans of um, of the tsunami, and um, it was for girls. And over time, and it, you know, we kind of realised that these children did actually have at least one living relative. They had um, at least, you know, one one. Um, one person um, that, um, you know, that was alive. And that person was often um, a parent and, and often a single mum. 
so then we kind of started questioning well you know why are these children here if, if you know they've actually got mums and um realized that you know actually it wasn't because uh the mums didn't want the children uh, mostly it was actually because the mums weren't in a position to be able to um afford to um you know look after and care for their children and they're two hugely different things and i think you know that that word orphanage and the concept of you know an orphan creates an image and this rhetoric of children being abandoned you know they're not wanted um you know and this kind of thing and actually um you know, this is now a you know this is a global phenomena. It's not just you know the Rosie May home. It's a it's a global phenomena, and you know there are eight, over eighty million children that are you know living in in res residential um, facilities, um, children's homes, and orphanages. And so, um, you know, it took us a while. It takes a while, you know, to understand all of this. And um, you know, but, but, you know, we got there and, you know, on the basis of that, we set up um, uh, another project called Project Hope, which um, aims to get, which is, works at grassroots level. So it aims to um, get to these, um, these single parents before they get to that crisis situation in their lives where they have to make that heartbreaking decision. Mm. And, um, you know, so we support them um, with income generation programs and um, family strengthening programs. And so far, we have actually had 100% success rate with our families, you know, none of them, none of their children have had to go into, into residential care. So, um, well done. So were you in Sri Lanka in 2004? Um, you, 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 along with your what, husband and sons, were in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit? Yes, we were. Yes, mm. we. Um, I mean, back backtracking, um, the charity was um, founded in, in memory of um, our daughter Rosie May, who was yeah, that's her name. Yeah, yeah. Who, who was murdered when she was um, ten years old in the UK, and the following year, which was December two thousand and four, we decided as a family that we didn't want to be here in the UK, um, obviously with the horrific recollections of the year before, the Christmas before. Yeah. So we decided we wanted to go somewhere where Christmas wasn't celebrated, where we wouldn't have those reminders of, I guess, you know, happy families celebrating Christmas because, you know, we, we were not that family anymore. So we mm. decided to go to Southeast Asia. Um, where obviously Christmas isn't celebrated. Um, so we went to an island um, off the coast of um, Sri Lanka. And um, on Boxing Day, on 2000, 2004 Boxing Day, we stood on the shore of that island waiting to get onto um, a dive boat, actually, with, um, with our two boys. And the 2004 tsunami hit. So... Um, so so we felt that we had been kept safe we felt very lucky um, did you get warned was, was there warnings coming through to you guys at, at yeah there was um we stood there and we were on the um lagoon side of the island rather than the ocean side of the island because we were getting onto a boat so the water didn't 
come as a wave on that side of the, of the island, it came as a surge. So one minute we were standing on the shore and then the next minute, you know, the, the water had just come in um, way deeper than it, than it normally does, obviously, um, kind of, you know, up to our waist. And then the most, the strangest thing was that then in an instant it receded. So it was like um, a plug had just been pulled and it mm. just vanished. And actually it um, exposed the 10 meter reef where we had learned to dive. So you could see the top of the reef and it left fish, you know, flapping on the shore because it went out so quickly. Wow. And that, mm. that was the point when, you know, we realized obviously that there was something, you know, this wasn't <laughs> a usual thing. And um, then a lot of the staff who were Sri Lankan started getting calls on their mobiles from, from friends and, and family saying there's been a tsunami, you know, in Indonesia. Because there was um, there was a 25 minute gap between the wave hitting the coast of Sri Lanka and the wave hitting us, so um, you know that we we had that time to kind of understand what it was because these um, you know they were getting communications from from family, and yeah. I remember turning around to one of my boys and saying, "What's the tsunami?" So I'd actually never heard of the word before. Really? It sounds, yeah. Yeah, it sounds ludicrous mm. now, but honestly. I just never heard of the word. And I said, what's a tsunami? And, uh, you know, my 13-year-old said, mum, it's, it's a huge wave that's caused by, you know, an earthquake, you know, under the sea. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he, and he said, you know, that, that's, that wave's going to come back, mum, you know, because it had gone out. You couldn't see it. It had gone out as far as, you know, you could see to the horizon. Mm. So with that, everybody just kind of it was incredible really when I think about it just jumped into action and we were filling you know bags with sand and we were actually very calm um, while this panic was raining around us we were actually very calm and um, you know again one of my other sons said to me mum you know we've been through the worst thing that you know we could ever go through you know you know what what could be worse kind of thing and I think yeah. that was you know he probably put it into perspective because we just didn't panic and mm. um so we everybody kind of barricaded themselves into the center of the island and this wave just kind of washed over really because of course you know there's no infrastructure on the island there was no you know it's not kind of like the mainland where you know trains were derailed and you know, buses and, and, you know, people were trapped in buildings and, and, you know, that kind of thing, which caused a lot of the, a lot of the deaths. So there were no fatalities on our island and kind of afterwards we, you know, we went to have a look round and to, to kind of look at the damage and, you know, the legs on, you know, the water bungalows with the, with the legs, you know, they'd been severed by the wave and, you know, obviously windows, you know, smashed the dockings where the seaplanes land had been ripped out. And, you know, so there was, you know, a huge amount of devastation. And the day before on Christmas Day, we planted a little tiny palm tree, a little sapling in memory of Rosie May. And we went back to look for it, expecting it to be obviously gone. Washed away, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and there it was. We, mm, you know, incredible. It completely untouched with debris swirling around it and that was you know kind of 
the point that we had um, the inspiration, the motivation to actually, um, you know, do something to help other people. And, mm. um, you know, that was our inspiration for the Rosie May Foundation. And yeah. so you, as, a, as a family in deep grief at that point, and, and mm. probably, it, I'm sure it never leaves you, um, but, you know, like, t- what, two sons, your husband and yourself, trying to get away from that memory for just a year, really, really recent. And um, I guess all you were thinking about, even though you were amongst this, disaster zone like you you, your thoughts all were with Rosie every waking minute that kind of what was that grief like yeah of course yeah of course yes I mean you know it's 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 consuming and um you know we um always you know used to say you know we woke up thinking about Rosie May and we you know went to um sleep thinking about Rosie May and Mm. um yeah absolutely and you're right you know it it never leaves you but I think over time what it does is um what what you do is you learn to adjust um and I kind of see that as a life that I had and the life that I have now as two different lives really in many respects um and I think what the charity did for us um is it enabled us to channel that grief into something positive you know it gave us the opportunity to talk about Rosie May even now you know I'm talking to you about her 17 years Mm. down the line and I think you know particularly with the stigma that's associated with um, you know with death um, particularly of children and then particularly children that um, are murdered you know nobody knows what to say to you Mark nobody so, so people don't talk about it because nobody knows yeah. what to say to you. So, yeah. um, so actually, you know, this gives us that opportunity to continue to keep Rosie May's um, legacy, yeah. um, which we've, you know, which we've created alive. And, um, you know, we like to think that her legacy lives on through, you know, the children, the many children, you know, that we're able to help to... Um, to, you know, to have a future, to have a better future, a future that obviously one that she was um, denied. She was a really talented girl as well, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah. Mm. She was very creative. Um, she was um, an little dancer. Um, so she just um, secured a place in our um, local professional pantomime. She loved performing and she loved people, you know. Um, she was very outgoing and she had this kind of magnetism that um, draws, you know, that would draw, you know, people to her and uh, infectious sparkle, as we like to call it. But um, yeah, she, she, uh, she had a real, you know, a real zest for life. And um, but also she was a very caring girl as well. You know, I think for, um, for a 10 year old, she was, she was very caring, um, particularly in terms of other children, other children that, you know, were, were younger than her. And also she was very, um, her, her mantra was girl power. So, um, <laughs> you know, for a 10 year old, I also think, you know, that's uh, quite intuitive. So again, you know, our, our mission to um, 
to work with um, women and children, uh, women yeah. and women and children, especially girls, is is you know a fitting, a fitting. A- absolutely. And were that partially from the Spice Girls? Like, did she like the Spice Girls music? Oh, she loved the Spice Girls. Mm, of course. Mm, love the of Spice course. Girls. Of course. <laughs> of course, <Mark>. And <laughs> Of course. How, has, how, how have you found, like, yourself talking about how she died? And also, you've, you know, you start this charity and it's, does it has done a great job of, of sort of creating a legacy for her and keeping her memory alive, absolutely. Um, how do you feel talking about it and and has it has that been difficult times and it sometimes you wanted to turn turn that off and just be private about it or what's it like for you um yeah i think um i think in the in the early days obviously it was um difficult but you know the thing is with murder Sadly, you actually don't have any choice, Mark, in terms of keeping your um, grief private because it becomes public. You know, you, you are thrust into the public arena um, because of the situation. So actually, that privilege of being able to grieve in privacy is actually taken away from you. Mm-hmm. So we were in the public domain um, and child, my, child murders are fortunately very rare but of course they are very high profile in the media so um so I think because of that we were able to manage this probably um more comfortably than maybe you know if 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 somebody um a grieving parent you know hadn't had that kind of exposure because obviously you have to, you know, you learn adapting and adjusting methods very quickly and very early on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think, the, but, but alongside with that is also, you know, the public support that you also get. And, and, you know, and that's, you know, a really good thing. And again, you know, you feel because this is a very isolating um, experience, you know, you feel... Uh, very isolated because you know there's not a whole load of people that have been in a similar situation that you can just find to talk to you know really rare Mm. yeah exactly you feel Mm. really on your own and Mm. and so that kind of public support that we got because of the exposure that we had I think actually really helped us enormously you know we had letters from all over the world money was sent to us from all over the world and, you know, the, the, the sympathy pulled in from all over the world. And it did go a long way into in discovering our faith in human nature, which, of course, yeah. is absolutely shattered at the time. Yeah, because um, it, so, yeah. it was some, it was a, a, a boy that you, she knew and you knew. Is that yes, right? Exactly. And, and, yeah, and, and you know, cuts the trust. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it should have been the safest place in the world. And mm. I think also that was why we had... Um, so much engagement with the public because most parents have been in that same situation you know most parents have been to a gathering with other families where they you know chat to other parents children go off and play 
everybody's done it. And so I think, you know, they, I think, you know, most parents resonated with that. And Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this wasn't a stranger that jumped out of, you know, a bush. This was somebody that we knew. We knew everybody there. You know, we knew every parent, we knew every child. You know, it should have been the safest place in the world. And so mm. I think that was what resonated with so many people. Yeah. And just on in terms of the, the perpetrator, um, do you do you stay connected to that or do you did you sort of kick that off a long time ago and you and you don't want to know what happened to that person or you know do, that, that part of it do you stay connected to? Yeah, we, we, we made the decision very early on not to actually and um, not to take um, you know that kind of route. Um, but to take a more um, positive route in terms of setting up the charity. Um, you know, there are parents that do, you know, sort of um, campaign and, you know, um, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Sarah's Law, for example, which was set up, um, you know, to yeah. help people identify paedophiles that are living in the local community by, you know, her mum. And, um, you know, again, similarly, you know, um, Denise Bulger, you know, she, she's, you know, had, um, you know, um, campaigned for, um, again, for, um, for justice in terms of, you know, um, younger um, perpetrators and been very successful. Um, but we kind of decided not to go down that route. Um, it was always... I think for me personally, it was always too too dark, really. And yeah. um, you know, we decided to to do something positive. You know, it's given us um, complete distraction from you know from going down you know the other the other route. Yeah. And what what age were you, if you don't mind me asking, when you embarked on your BA in global studies and and then your master's? Oh well, yeah, I was a mature student. Um, I was in my forties. Um, Go you. Um, that's yeah great. and i um yeah i was down with the kids um <laughs> and um yeah even bought um even bought a pair of ugg boots to um you know kind of to really in. blend in yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and um let me tell you mark the 19 year old particularly the boys always loved to be in my group for group work because of course you know they knew that you know you got I the job done. The, I would do all the reading, and <laughs> yeah. they never did. And yeah. Um, yeah, so actually, I was far more popular than I thought it would be. But um, but actually, you know, it was so refreshing um, to go to university as a mature student. And in my on my course, I was the only mature student, and it was just so refreshing to be actually treated just like everybody else. And, you know, I guess it was that um, anonymity that actually I'd never had until I went to university because everything I did was associated with the charity. So although I was um, putting myself out there, it was always in kind of quite a safe way because, you know, I always knew who my audience was, you know, I knew that they knew my story. Um, so, you know, I was very prepared and, you know, that's how I was able to manage it. But of course, you know, to just go into um, somewhere like a university where nobody knows you yeah. and you then obviously are going to be asked those questions, you know, which was always my biggest fear, 
um, you know, about, you know, so, you know, have you got children? Yeah, well, you know, how many children have you got? You know, and then you're faced with that dilemma. Yeah. You know, do what you do, say... What, yeah, what do you choose children? often? Do you, yeah. yeah. Or do you say, I've got three children, and then they'll say, oh, have you? Oh, you know, they. what do they do? You know, how old are they? What, you know, so then, so you have to kind of make that decision which way you're going to go on this, because the other thing is, if you make that decision to tell them what's happened, of course, they're, you, you know, they're not expecting to hear that in a million years. You know, why would somebody? So mm. then, of course, you have to cope with their reaction. Their reaction, yeah. And I've, I've uh, recent podcasts, a, a couple of my guests have um, talked about people not being, not reacting well or not knowing where to put themselves or not knowing what to say or saying dumb dumb things uh and and you know having to sort of cope with that or deal with that when you you're looking to just have a, a simple human exchange um what did you find yourself typically doing did you do you just it would differ depending on who you're talking to in the situation or how you felt that day yeah, I think that's exactly yeah. what I did. Mm. You know, I used to think, well, if I'm not going to see, never going to see this person again, then, you know, um, but, yeah. it, but I always used to feel really guilty because then I used to feel that I was actually denying Rosie May's existence. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so then, you know, then you have that to cope with. But um, I did used to make, that's exactly how I used to do it. Um, then if, you know, obviously it was, you know, somebody that, you know, I would see again uh, or, you know, come across again or then, you know, obviously I would, you know, I would tell, would, you know, tell them. Mm. Um, but, and again, you know, the, you know, to, to, to deal with, to talk to, you know, kind of uh, younger people, you know, other, you know, fellow students, again, it was, kind of a they would have you know um a probably a different reaction to a parent for example um so you know again it, it depends who you're talking to and you know kind of how they you know how they react um but it really, yes. it was just it was just so refreshing and um my professor actually um made the uh, analogy that it was my coming out because you know it was the first time that I had actually you know taken myself out of my comfort zone out of my safety zone yeah and, you know to, I, um, yeah I think it's a wonderful thing to do so had had university not been an option previously in your life um, well, I'm um, I'm um, a qualified um, nurse, um, so um, nursing at that time wasn't in you know there wasn't in a university. It was you know in a school of nursing, so um, it was just in a different kind of format, I guess. Um, and then I went into teaching, and I did that again. I now put the COVID question to Mary, and it's really fascinating to hear how people and charities are coping and pivoting around COVID. The pandemic. So obviously we had events planned for this year and when events dropped off the calendar in March, that meant that 70% of our fundra- of our income, of our revenue stream disappeared. So, um, 
we um, pivoted very quickly to connect with our own local community that obviously was now in crisis um, to be able to support um, families and um, you know local people and we had um, a little pink tuk-tuk you know I was going to ask you about this yeah yeah a little three-wheeler um, called Rosie the little pink tuk-tuk which we had had imported um, from India it's a Bajaj tuk-tuk which is identical to the ones that we use in Sri Lanka um, to train, we're training the first um, women to drive them as taxis for the women and children as an income generation program to firstly lift the driver mum out of poverty so that she can keep her family together, but also to keep other women and children safe because um, there's a very high percentage of um, sexual harassment in Sri Lanka on public transport. So the UNFPA in Sri Lanka did a um, did a research program in 2015 which um, found that over 90% of women that use public transport are sexually harassed uh, at any one time and out of that 90% it's over 90% actually but out of that only 6% actually report that harassment to the police so it's kind of been normalized in Sri Lanka basically women just put up with it so um, so we had some, you know, obviously some um, evidence to be able to, on the basis of, you know, kind of setting up this program. And so we did. And um, so this Pink Tuck Tuck in the UK was used to raise awareness of the program. So we would take it to um, schools and to conferences and to exhibitions. So it never went on the road as such we mm. would trade we would trailer it you know from you know wherever one part of the country to the next then of course when the pandemic happened it was sitting i she was sitting idle because of course we personalized her so she was sitting idle and <laughs> um we put her so we put her to good use in our community so she's uk road legal she's yeah. taxed and you know um we can drive her uh, on the uk roads and we started off by reaching out to our local independent businesses who were struggling with the demand of deliveries yeah. from people in lockdown. So we were able to reach the people that they couldn't. So, for example, Tony the Eggman on the market store, you know, he couldn't, he didn't have the capacity to deliver half a dozen eggs to, you know, and, and, you know, an, an elderly person that lived in a rural village. Um, but obviously it was something that we could do. So we were able to access, you know, those kind of people that would not have been able to access, you know, medication, fresh food, um, you know, all those kind of essential items that were needed at the time. And importantly, what we realized really quickly was actually this gave us an opportunity to to speak to talk to to spend a bit of time giving that person the human interaction yeah a bit. obviously they were missing and mostly we were the only person that they would see or we and you know other deliveries yes you know they could have them but you know other deliveries would just drop and go on the doorstep whereas yeah. we would our volunteers would you know kind of have that doorstep chat which, you know, could it be from two minutes to 20 minutes and often was 20, 20 minutes, to yeah. be honest, Mark. But yeah. um, so, 
so that was what we did and started up building you know obviously relationships with you know people in our local community but what that did for the charity as well was that it kept it raised our profile hugely I bet we, it did, thought, yeah. we thought we were really well known you know in the in the community but actually we you know now nobody in our community mm. doesn't know who we are yeah um, so it raised our profile hugely and again you know Rosie was our lifeline because it brought in donor, you know, she brought in donations mm. and it enabled us to have access to a whole new audience who, although were very inward looking at the time, as I think the whole of the nation were, to be fair, you know, people were concerned with their own family safety, you know, their jobs, you know, everything else. It allowed us, it's allowed us to engage with those people so that now people are starting to look more outwardly at the global situation. You know, it's given us yeah. a whole new audience of, of um, you know, donors and supporters. So, um, yeah, yeah. and we still, and you know, we still carry on that, that service now. You know, obviously we've gone back into lockdown too. We've come out into strict, you know, tiers so it's you know that service is still very much needed and yeah. um you know and we will continue it and um that's you know just been a really great result for us and absolute pleasure to catch up again and um after you know quite a few years from our last conversation quite a few years uh, uh, quite a few years <laughs> um i'm i'm hoping that the um the organization i used to work for is uh still supporting you guys and continue to do so that's my hope so massive thank you for listening to Purpose It Podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying bringing these stories to you. Visit our website, purposefitpodcast.com. Join our tribe, leave your email address. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please hit subscribe. Please leave a review, really appreciate it. 